Who are you, old man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Of course not. In asking these questions, Paul is basically asking, do you really know who you are and who God is? Who are you to challenge God? Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We are working our way through chapter 9 of the Book of Romans, a difficult passage dealing with topics such as predestination and sovereign election. We have seen so far that in this section of his letter, the Apostle Paul is dealing with the nation Israel and specifically God's decision to have the people of Israel be the group that God would elect to bring the Savior of the world. The question is not, does God elect, but rather, how does God elect? Today's message is entitled, God's Sovereign Choice. Take the Word of God this morning, would you, and turn to Romans chapter 9, Romans 9. If you've been with us, we've been working our way through the epistle to the Romans, and the ninth chapter, as you know, unfolds the doctrine of sovereign election. It certainly is a subject that has sparked a lot of debate, especially since the time of the Protestant Reformation. But the Bible teaches the doctrine of election. In Ephesians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul wrote, He chose us, and the verb there for choosing us is the verb from which we get our word elect. God elected us before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. There is a supernatural dimension to our salvation that does not originate with man, but originates with God. The Bible teaches that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We saw in Romans 3 that by nature there is none who seeks God, no, not one. And so if none by nature seek after God because we're all rebels, and if all are dead with the same capacity of that of a corpse, then God must take the initiative in our salvation. But when he does so, he does not do so against our will. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. But understand, God drawing someone to himself is not the same as converting that person against his will. And so this process by which God takes the initiative is what we typically refer to as divine election. And the point of debate amongst Bible-believing Christians is not does God elect. The point of debate is how does God elect? How does He choose us? Some of my hyper-Calvinistic friends would say that you can have two women, both pregnant, with two babies who have never seen the light of day, and God in eternity past created one for heaven and he created the other for hell. I happen to believe that that is a slander against the character of God and it totally ignores the free will of man that God has given us a choice to choose Christ or to reject him. But the wonder of it all is that the God of the universe who said the wages of sin is death, who set the penalty, paid the penalty because he loved us so much in Christ, and so the Bible closes with an invitation, whosoever will may come. God does not invite people and then make it impossible for them to come. In John chapter 6 and verse 47, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees who are in gross unbelief. And he plainly said this, all 
that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. I love this verse because in it you see both the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. Election and free will are both here. Think about it. All that the Father gives me shall come to me. That's the doctrine of election. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. That's free will. That's human responsibility. Now, we studied at the end of Romans 8, and we will come to this word again in Romans 11, the subject of divine foreknowledge. And foreknowledge is put together with two Greek words as in English. Prognosco, and it means advanced knowledge or prior knowledge. In Romans 8 and verse 29, the Apostle Paul tells the Christians living in Rome that those whom he foreknew, he called into a relationship with himself. And since the most common meaning of foreknowledge is to know something ahead of time, and in light of all the passages that we've studied in past weeks that deal with that subject, commentators, both ancient and modern, have believed that God foresees all, and based on that prior knowledge, God makes a determination. But the Calvinists would say that God makes his decision all by himself And the only reason a person, quote-unquote, freely says yes to the Lord is because God first said yes to them in eternity past. And they would say that to, to, to espouse that one actually has a real free will decision concerning his salvation makes God less than sovereign and makes salvation a work of man. But I hope to show you once again from the ninth chapter here of Romans that God, yes, works, but God does not squish the free will of man. And so God in eternity past could look down the ages. God could see how men and women and boys and girls would respond to the gospel of his son. And based on that, he elected people. In 1 Peter chapter 1, the apostle Peter said, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens who are chosen, how? According to the foreknowledge. The word there is prognosis. It's a medical word that we use today that speaks of advanced knowledge. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And so, yes, all biblical Christians believe in the doctrine of election. But I believe that that election is based on God's prior knowledge. And that's why we saw last week, before the foundation of the world, God could write the names of those who would be saved in the Lamb's Book of Life. Do you remember there in Acts, the 16th chapter, when Paul the Apostle faces the Philippian jailer? And the jailer asks the question, what must I do to be saved? Paul didn't say, well, are you one of the chosen? He didn't say, well, check to see if you have a preordination certificate. No, he simply said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Now, the only one who knows ahead of time of those who will be saved is God. But the very fact that a person has a desire to turn to the living God requires that God moves first and prepares the circumstances that they might believe. And the jailer, just like us, was dead in sin. And so God moved in his heart, orchestrated the events that he might have a chance to believe. And so based on God's advanced knowledge, he appoints people, which helps me to understand a verse like Acts 13, 48, a favorite verse of my Calvinistic friends. There Paul says, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. 
as many as had been appointed. And again, my Calvinist friends would say that God appointed some to go to heaven and some to go to hell. But this verse does not mean that. It simply means that God in eternity past, knowing how a person would respond to general revelation and specific revelation and to the Spirit who would convict the whole world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, based on that, God can appoint people because He knows that some will freely say yes, the whosoever wills are the elect, and the whosoever wants are the non-elect. Now, from our perspective, we see conversion happening in time and space. But from God's eternal perspective, He can see it ever before He even made the world. Now, with that said, with those thoughts, I want us to read our passage. I hope you brought a Bible. Romans chapter 9, follow along beginning in verse 19 where we left off last time. You will say to me then... Why does he still find fault for who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience, Vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon the vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. Now, don't get lost in the forest and miss the flow of context in this chapter. This is a challenging text of Scripture. And as I read it, I saw some bewildered faces communicating to me, what on earth is he going to say about these verses? I asked myself the same question this week as I prepared it. But sometimes when I'm overwhelmed with a paragraph of Scripture, it helps me to carefully examine the context. It's like the setting of a ring. It brings out the beauty of the ring. And when you see the context of the passage, you can see what God is saying. So let's walk our way up until verse 19 for just a brief moment as a review. If you remember, the chapter opens with Paul in great grief. In verse 2, he says, I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. At the end of chapter 8, when he looked at the Lord Jesus and God's unfailing love, his heart rejoiced. But here in chapter 9, when he looks at his Jewish brethren, he weeps. He says in verse 3, it's an amazing statement, for I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ, for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. The apostle Paul was willing to be cursed, even separated from Christ, if it could mean that his Jewish brethren would be saved. Paul's an amazing man. He told the Philippians he was willing to stay out of heaven, for the sake of the saved. And he tells the Romans he's willing to uh, stay, to go to hell for the sake of the lost. And what makes his grief so much more intense are the divine privileges and blessings that God had given to the nation. And so we spent a whole message just on verses four and five. Those blessings that should have led Israel to repentance, but instead it only led to them to be prideful and hard of heart. Then if you remember here in verses 6 to 13, we studied how God chose Israel out of all the nations of the world and that when God chose Israel, he did not make a mistake. 
that the problem was not with God's choice, but with Israel's response. Now, some Christians, as we studied, have said that the promises that God made to the nation of Israel were conditional in nature. It's true with some of the covenants, but it is not true of the Abrahamic covenant. And so they said that because when he came to his own, the Jewish people, and his own did not receive him, that God has now abandoned the nation of Israel, and we have become the new Israel. And you will hear some commentators and some pastors, when they speak of the church as the new Israel, behind that what they are saying is there's no significance for the Jewish nation in our day that God has dropped them. And if you begin with that faulty premise... And if you read chapter 9 apart from the rest of the Bible and apart from chapters 10 and 11, then when you come to the ninth chapter, you will not see national election, which is the thrust of the entire chapter, but you will see individual election. And if you start with that faulty premise that God has abandoned the people of Israel and the church has replaced her, then when you come to verse 7 in this chapter, in verse 13, you will have a distorted view of election. We looked at verse 7, it's from Genesis 21, notice, through Isaac, your descendants will be named. God chose Isaac over Ishmael, and we saw that that did not mean that God chose Isaac for heaven and Ishmael for hell. In fact, we know Ishmael went to heaven, but the thrust of the passage based on the Old Testament was God choosing the uh, people who would come out of Isaac's loins over those who would come out of Ishmael to be his chosen people. Then we saw from Malachi 1, a quotation uh, that Paul gives here in verse 13, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And some again from this verse presuppose that God, because he had rejected Israel, chose Jacob to go to heaven and Esau to go to hell. But when we went back into the Old Testament in Genesis 25, which is what Malachi references, that there are two nations, two peoples in the womb. And God chose those who would come out of Jacob versus those who would come out of Esau. He chose Israel out of the Edomites in which to bring the Savior of the world. But again, people very often, because they miss the context of the passage and they miss the meaning of these quotations from the Old Testament because they have a distorted view of the Jewish people, they read into the Scripture something that is not plainly taught. Now, Paul, knowing that some people would think it would be unfair that God would choose the Jewish nation. Remember, God had to choose some nation. God set the stage by which we could identify the Messiah. And he gave all these prophecies, and he specifically named the people that that Messiah would come from. Jesus, of course, is a Jew. And some people would say, well, why did God choose them and not somebody else? Isn't that unfair? So anticipating that objection, we saw in verse 14, notice, what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. And then if you were here last time, we studied verses 15 to 18, where we saw of God's, we saw God's sovereign right to choose. We saw how the way he dealt with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And we saw how God nowhere, ever, anywhere in all the scripture first hardens a man's heart. A man always hardens his heart first, and then in response to that hardening, God acts. 
And so out of all the references in Exodus 3 through 10 concerning Pharaoh's heart being hard, and we saw the first two references were prophecies of what God was going to do. And then we saw in time and space the next seven references are Pharaoh hardening his heart against God. And it's not until seven times Pharaoh hardens his heart that God then in turn hardens Pharaoh's heart. And so it's after the sixth plague, the plague of boils, that God in response to Pharaoh's decision in turn hardens the man's heart. Why? Because God never smushes a person's free will. God always acts judicially out of man's first response. Now, with that background, that brings us into the context of verse 19. Notice, if you will, again, Paul, as we've seen all the way through Romans, anticipates the objections that some of the critics would have. And so he asks the question, notice, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? And so beginning here in verse 19, Paul will show that God is in no way unjust. God elected the people of Israel to be the chosen people of Israel, and in God doing so, it was his divine right. If you want to take down some notes, you can see the title of the sermon is God's Sovereign Choice, and there are three simple principles I want you to see. The first concerns the rightness of God's sovereign choice, the rightness of his choice. In verse 19, Paul asks, two questions. And again, he's anticipating objections that people would have to the statement he just made in verse 18, that God shows mercy on whom he desires, at the same time hardening whom he desires. So he asks, you will say then to me, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? Paraphrased, if God is sovereign, as you say, Paul, then how can we possibly resist and undo the will of God? If we cannot resist the sovereign will of God, if God has hardened the nation of Israel, as he's getting ready to show us in just a moment, and if God hardened Israel like he hardened Pharaoh's heart, then how can God possibly justly ever find fault with us since God is the one who hardened us? And this question that Paul is basically asking is, is God really being fair? And by the way, fair always relates to justice. And biblically, theologically speaking, you don't want, fair, you don't want justice. You want mercy. When I'm pulled over by a policeman, hypothetically speaking, of course, <laughs> just for the sake of illustration, but when I've been pulled over, I don't say, sir, would you please give me justice? Well, concerning your sin, you don't want to ask God for justice. You want to ask God for mercy. See, Paul is dealing with the person who thinks if it's God's will to harden the sinner such that the sinner just goes on in his sin, then how can he possibly blame the sinner? I mean, who could blame Pharaoh if God hardened Pharaoh's heart? And who can blame Israel, the nation, if God hardened the people of Israel, as he's going to explain to us? So Paul is going to say that this attitude is wrong for two reasons. First, it supposes that man, a mere creature, is wiser than the creator God. And secondly, it ignores the illustration that he had just given with Israel there at Mount Sinai with Moses up on top and the people down in revelry at the bottom and that somehow God was not perfectly righteous in the way he responded. 
We saw from the Exodus that the whole nation, God said, deserved to be wiped out. But we learn from verse 15 that very often God's justice is tempered by his mercy. And so God showed mercy. And so Paul answers these questions in verse 19 by asking three questions in verses 20 and 21. Follow what he says. Look at verse 20. On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Of course not. In asking these questions, Paul is basically asking, do you really know who you are and who God is? Who are you to challenge God? In effect, Paul recognizes that this objection rises out of a hard, obstinate heart that kicks against the sovereign will of God. I've had a few people in my 35 years of ministry who have said to me, when I see God, I'm going to tell him a thing or two. And Paul would say, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? Do you know who you are? You are going to tell the sovereign, all-wise God of the universe something? How dare you, little man, talk back to a sovereign God? And so God, having the last word, he says the thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? And again, this statement presumes that somehow man has the right to question Almighty God and that man has the right contextually to question the wisdom of God in choosing Israel out of all the nations of the world. Now, the illustration is a national illustration. Paul is speaking here of a clay and a potter, and it comes from the book of Jeremiah. Hold your finger here and turn to Jeremiah chapter 18. If you're new to the Bible, Psalms is about dead center. Find the Psalms in the middle of your Bible and then scan to the right and you will pass Isaiah and then you will come to Jeremiah. Every Jew would have understood the illustration and where it came from. It's a very famous passage of Scripture, almost as famous to the Jewish mind as John 3.16 is to the Gentile mind. Jeremiah 18.10, which we will focus on in a moment, really enlightens us as to what Paul is speaking of here in Romans 9. And this whole section will remind us that the clay has no right to tell the potter what to do. Let's pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 18. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will announce my words to you. Then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was making something on the wheel. But the vessel that, was making, that he was making of clay was spoiled in the hand of the potter. The Hebrew word here for spoil carries the thought that it was ruined or it was made rotten. Now the potter didn't make it that way. It was something that was amiss in the clay. And because of that, the clay became spoiled. So speaking here of God's sovereign power, he goes on to say, so he remade it into another vessel as it pleased the potter to make. Now notice verse 5. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, Can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as the potter does, declares the Lord? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. In other words, you've become spoiled and ruined. And so as the potter, if I so choose, I can remake you into another vessel. 
And not just you, I can do the same with other peoples and other nations of the world. Look at verse 7. At one moment I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot, to pull down, or to destroy it. If that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity I plan to bring on it. And by the way, that ought to be a word of warning as well as a word of encouragement to America. Because this nation that was founded on Judeo-Christian principles that honored and revered God, that had a deep respect for God, is now waving their fists in the face of God Almighty. And the clay is going to become totally spoiled. And we think, and our leaders think, that they are so much wiser than God Almighty and things that God calls evil, they call good and a person's right. And God is not divorced in dealing with the nations of this world. And if he wants to turn the faucet off and bring a national drought, if God wants to deal with America, he can so choose to, and we would be wise to fear him. So he says in verse 9, Or at another moment I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to build up or to plan it. Then he says, If it does evil in my sight by not obeying my voice, then I will think better of the good with which I had promised to bless it. The picture is clear. Since Israel had marred herself, God as the potter chose uh, not to use her. And so again, he is giving a warning to Israel. And if you know Jeremiah the prophet, he's a pre-exilic prophet. He's preaching to the southern kingdom, Judah. And he's warning them, if they do not repent, then God is going to bring the Babylonians down from the north and carry them away in judgment. And that's exactly what happened. Now go back to Romans chapter 9. The Apostle Paul is reminding us of what God did with individuals like Pharaoh that he also does with nations. And as Jeremiah the prophet indicates, whether it's God's dealing with, Israel's, with Israel or the nations around Israel, he is sovereign and able to do as he pleases. God condemns. He has the authority to condemn a pot that he thinks is marred or has been spoiled. But clearly, the illustration that Paul is alluding to here is not that God makes nations evil first and then God responds to what he has made. No, like Pharaoh, who had a free will choice, so did the people of Israel. And if God in his mercy chooses to show mercy and compassion, he can. And if God in his wisdom chooses to harden, he can. But we'll see in just a moment when a person or even a nation of persons hardens himself, then God acts out of his will and out of his sovereign character. God is the one who prepares some vessels for destruction. And God is the one, as we will see, who will prepare other vessels for mercy. And again, what Paul teaches here in Romans 9 is nothing new to a Hebrew, is nothing new to the Jewish mind, because God is dealing in this chapter not with individual election, but all the way through with nations. I've chosen the nation that will come out of Isaac over the nation that will come out of Ishmael. I've chosen the nation that will come out of Jacob over the nation that will come out of Esau. It is important when studying this passage to not lose the greater context of it as part of the national section of Romans. Tomorrow, when we pick up in our study of chapter 9, 
we'll look at verse 23, which looks at vessels of mercy for glory as opposed to the vessels set out beforehand for destruction. To listen again to today's message entitled, God's Sovereign Choice, or perhaps to refresh yourself on the rest of the series, use the Search the Scriptures app available for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. And if you would like a CD or DVD copy, call 877-787-7478. Tomorrow, Pastor Carl continues his look at God's sovereign choice. Join us then as we search the scriptures.